we'll go ahead and get started. I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew. The Gospel of St. Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 16. And then when you have that, if you could just put a pin in Second Peter. Matthew 16, and then Second Peter. Matthew 16, Second Peter. All right. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some may say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it says this, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking to him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their face, down to the ground, and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Christ himself. Going over to Second Peter, just to kind of put this entire thing in context a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as an utterance, this, such as, an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on that holy mountain. So this is kind of what we're going to talk about just for the next few moments. Um, Jesus is, without question, probably the most controversial figure in all of history, right? Everybody has something to say about Jesus, whether it's good, uh, which I hope all of you have something good to say about Jesus, or whether it's bad. Everybody has a view of who Jesus is. Now, I am not going to profess that within the next 20 minutes that I am going to um, do something that people have argued about for years and tell you exactly who Jesus Christ is and everything about him. But my prayer is today that through this message that you would begin to see who Jesus is in your own personal life. And hopefully that you would see that Jesus is more than a good feeling, more than just a goosebump, more than just this dead, invisible figure that we celebrate when we come here to church, but that he is intimate with us on a daily basis and he is also God. Cool? Great. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these moments. Uh, thank you for your word. You said that uh, when your word comes out, it will not come back to you void. So we are praying that something happens uh, in our hearts today. Open up our hearts, our ears. Uh, let this be about a whole lot more of you and a lot less of me. Uh, thank you for everything that's going to happen in here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, by a show of hands, how many of you grew up as church kids? Church kids. Oh, wow, that's a lot of people. We should start a support group. That's pretty awesome. Um, I grew up as a church kid. Um, I grew up in a tad bit different of a church than this. I grew up in a, uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. 
which is just a, a, a big word to say that we were a tad bit more energetic than when we are here today. Uh, I grew up uh, in, a, in a Pentecostal church, but here goes the important part. I grew up in a, a black Pentecostal church, so we had a little bit of our own culture um, there. Uh, a black Pentecostal church, I know many of you probably have not been to one of those services, but I'm going to try to explain this to you in the most uh, scholarly way possible. It's a very long process. Uh, it's kind of like watching the History Channel for three hours, right? Like, you don't know when it's going to be over, so when the pastor gets up to pray the benediction, it's a surprise to everybody involved. And it's like, oh, wow, this was a very long thing. Um, so as a kid, it was, it, was, it was the worst sitting in these type of services because you weren't paying attention to begin with. So we had something that was called a Terry service, which started before the Bible school. That's right, there was something before the Bible school on Sunday morning. Terry service is when they would come in, they would get on the altar, and they would pray for what seemed like an eternity. Like I would already be in puberty before they were done praying. And then we would go through Bible study, and then we would go through church, and then we would do community afterwards. It was a very just long, drawn-out thing. And as a child, I hated this because, like, I mean, I'm a kid. I just want to play with my Goku, you know, my little, my little Dragon Ball Z action figures. I didn't want to listen to this guy preach about who knows what for three hours. And um, it would be the worst when you would get hungry as a child. We had something that was called a church mother. A church mother was just an old lady who would just wave a flag whenever the preacher said something good. Um, and it, it, like, it was their job to take care of the children during the church services. So if I went up to them and I said, wow, I'm, I'm, like, I'm famished. It's like the Hunger Games in here. They would say something along the lines of like, well, you just need to pray it away. It's going to be okay. That's what the church mother's role was. But it's interesting that I say that, and it seems maybe a little bit comical, but I see an observation hidden within that. Isn't it interesting how my experience in that church was always ruined due to my bad view of church? The better question is, how is it that one person would be brought to tears in that service? One person would come to know Christ in that service. Another person would be baptized in that service. And then I'm sitting over here hating my life in that service. It was the same service. The same word was being preached. The same pastor was up there doing his thing. But how is it that all of these views were assimilating under this one roof? See, our view of things have the ability to set the trajectory for our experience. And that is exactly what we are seeing here in the story of St. Matthew. So at this time, Jesus is at a high point in his ministry. He's at at the apex of his three-year ministry. And uh, he's going around teaching from village to village, drawing hundreds and hundreds every time he spoke. Uh, Jesus has the fame right now where his, his, his legend is actually preceding his actual presence. So that is to say that if we knew that Jesus Christ was going to be in Dayton, which we know that he would not be in Dayton, but if he were going to be in Dayton... We here in Cincinnati would make our way to Dayton way before Jesus would get there because we're that enamored with him. Now, here goes the thing. There are three different types of people that pop up in the gospel narrative. Uh, I would say that all three of them are enamored, but enamored for three different ways. There's one person who actually needs Jesus, who recognizes that they need him. That's the broken person, the person who needs the healing, the person who feels as though their life is falling apart, the person whose marriage may be falling apart, the person who may be feeling, who may feel like they don't know what's going on. They, they need him. There's another person that pops up in the narrative, and that's the religious leader, or as I call them, the haters, <laughs> who tried to question every single thing Jesus was doing. So Jesus was healing, and all they could concentrate on was like, but you're healing on a Sabbath day. They saw him as someone who was a blasphemer. And then there was a third type of person. The third type of person was the person that came to see what Jesus was doing, but wasn't accepting his words. They wanted to see what miracle he could do with a stick. What could he do in the dirt? What, what was he actually saying? They, did, they didn't actually care about the life-changing revelation that he was giving. They just wanted to see how good of an orator he was. 
Those were the three different people that were coming to see Jesus. And it's interesting because I have to ask the question, how is it that Jesus, one man, preached the same gospel, did the same thing in every single town he went to, preached to, to every, every single heart that he was preaching to was a broken heart. So everybody had this broken heart. How is it that this one man with the same words, the same gospel, how did he get three different views put on him? How is it that the skeptic, the non-believer, and the religious sat in the same service and got something completely different than what Jesus was saying? And I dare to tell you that is because their view of Jesus was not spot on. And it's in this intimate setting, after he comes away from the crowds, after he's done preaching, he, he goes away and he takes, he takes his 12 closest best friends with him. And it's in that intimate setting that, that we see one of the most impactful dialogues in all of the biblical narrative unfold. He's sitting down with his disciples and he asks two very simple questions. Two very simple questions. And that's what we're going to talk about. The first question, he says, who do men say that I am? Simply translated, who are people saying that I am? And some of the disciples immediately spoke up and they said, some say you're Elijah and some say you're Jeremiah. Um, some say that you're just one of the prophets who have risen again. Now, if I were Jesus, if I was Jesus, that's the nail that I would want to hit on. That's, that's what I would be talking about because I came through eons of history and I came through all of this majesty and I came through all of this glory and I surrendered my throne and I, I submitted myself to the virgin womb of Mary and I put flesh on and I put the blood that I made in, you know, for all of you. I put it in my body and I'm about to be mocked and all that you can do is see that I'm maybe one of the prophets. How insulting is that, to be honest? Like, we hold the prophets in high esteem but they're nowhere near Jesus. And you're saying that I'm, a, I'm just a prophet? That's the nail that I would want to hit on. But he doesn't. He kind of moves on. And he says, okay, that's fine. He bypasses that, and he goes on to ask a different question. And this is the question that only has one right answer. This question will cause the disciples to examine the past couple of years and examine their souls. And I'm going to ask this question right now. And it's going to cause us as a church to examine this. That question... That question was the genesis of the church. This question is what our salvation is hinged upon. And it is still the question that echoes through the corridors of time today. He says, okay, that's who other people say that I am. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I read scriptures like this and I'm kind of appalled for the disciples. What would ever possess Jesus to believe that his 12 closest friends, the ones who have been following him for years, wouldn't know who he was. For Jesus was not asking a stranger who had never witnessed anything about him this, this question. He was asking 12 men who had, been them, who had been there with him to see him resurrect dead bodies, to see him perform these miracles, who have seen him, him, him grow and, and, and show off the religious elite. Challenge the status quo. Perform miracles that mere mortals could only dream of. These were the 12 people that he was asking. And yet something more grasping than the question itself sticks his head out. For it turns out, 11 out of the 12 disciples couldn't even answer the question. For they knew not the answer. And when it seems as though the 12 had let the Messiah down, Peter speaks up and says, For you are the Son of God. For this answer would not have surprised me if it came from the mouth of another person, but it came from the mouth of Peter. You know, cussing Peter. The, you know, the Peter that doesn't stand up during worship. You know, the, the Peter that doesn't take anything seriously, the, the Peter that we kind of uh, want to turn our back on and be like, oh my gosh, you're just, you're just too much for church. Or that's the, that's the guy that comes in, you know, maybe a little, you know, 
hungover from Saturday. That's not in the Bible. I made that part up. Don't think Jesus was a drunk. Or Peter was a drunk. I mean, he might have been. We're moving on. <laughs> Edit that out the podcast. Peter was the type of person that we wouldn't necessarily want our friends to be. Or our children to hang around. Peter was the type of person that had a lot of issues. And he wore it on his sleeves. A little bit too emotional for the rest. This is the guy that answered the question that the other 11 couldn't answer. He said, you are the son of God. Yes, cussing Peter was the guy that said that. You are the son of God. Why is it that no one else responded? Why not Matthew? Matthew was, a, was an outcast and a tax collector who was hated by all people. And the Bible actually categorizes Matthew as being one who was lower than sin. So why did Matthew, the one who Jesus gave a brand new community and a brand new start to, why didn't Matthew have the answer to that question? But what about John? John goes around and he calls himself the beloved one. Like, how arrogant is that? <laughs> Call yourself the beloved one. Jesus' supposed best friend. His best friend. The person that would take care of his mother. Why didn't John answer that question? But it was Peter who spoke up. And upon Peter speaking up, Christ began to honor Peter. And he says, you know this, not because flesh and blood told you this, but because it has been revealed to you by the Father. And it is in that sentence that we find the greatest lesson. That if we are to see Christ for who he really is, then that, if that image is who he really is, it is not an image that can be taught. It has to be an image that is revealed to us personally. I can teach you about the characteristics of Jesus. Plenty of people in here could teach you about the characteristics of Jesus. Wikipedia could teach you about the characteristics of Jesus. But if it hasn't been revealed to you that he is your personal savior, that he is very real in your life, that he is with you on a daily basis, that he is with you, yes, when things are going great, and you may not even believe this, but he's also with you when you're in the club. He is with you. He's intimate with you. He is your savior. If that has not been revealed to you, then you are missing the point of who Jesus really is. There is nothing wrong with teaching. That's what I'm doing up here right now. As it builds and it edifies his church. But teaching plus nothing else just gives you more head knowledge. But personal revelation will give you heart knowledge and draw you closer into his presence. And that is why we get so giddy when we come into worship experiences like this. For we know that if we receive new insight about the king, everything else inside of us will change. That is the importance of this moment, coming into church on Sunday, so that we can remind ourselves of who Jesus is to us. So everything else can fade to black, and we can just put our eyes on the personal revelation of Jesus. I really do believe that our experience with him is directly tied to our view of him. So if you've been going around in life, you're like, oh man, all this bad stuff is happening, this is God's fault. This is God's fault that my mom left me. This is God's fault that this is happening. This is God's fault that my finances are right. Well, that's what, that's what, that's what Jesus is going to be to you. He's supposedly going to be the person that is ruining your life. But if you can come in here and you're like, wow, Jesus is the one who raised me from the dead, who gave me a brand new start, who gave me hope, who gave me the gifts, who gave me a community, then that's exactly who Jesus will be to you. A person who takes dead things and resurrects them. Our experience with him is directly tied to our view of him. Revelation gives you heart knowledge. 
And once Christ had opened Peter's understanding, it was time for him to expand Peter's view. God is always trying to expand our view of who he really is. You will never know everything there is to know about Jesus. There are people who have studied this thing for their entire lives, and they still do not know everything there is to know about God. I love what Francis Chan says about that. He says, every single time I think that I know everything there is to know about God, I remind myself that I'm just a soda can floating in the ocean. Like there's so much more that can come in. And then when I get filled up again, there's so much more out there. And then when I get filled up again, there's so much more. And when I find out that he's a savior, then I find out that he's on my side. And when I find out that he's a father, then I also find out he's a great discipliner. And when I find out that he cares about me, I begin to understand a little bit more and more of how much he loves me. There's so much more that all of us can learn about Jesus. For Peter had seen Christ as a man, but he had yet to see Christ as God. And even the Bible backs that up because Jesus actually asked, this question before to his disciples and they were like oh man yeah yeah you're just a ghost that's what they saw him as was a ghost or maybe just a prophet so they had saw him as a man but they hadn't saw him yet as god and you have to understand that it was important for peter and the others to see christ as god because if they only saw him as a man then they would have only seen one side of christ and if you fail to see the full image of christ then you have failed to see him altogether you have to see jesus in his full state For if we only see Jesus as a mighty deity, yet we do not see him as the man who has compassion for you and I, then you have not truly been exposed to him. Yet if we only see him, see his loving kindness and his gracious compassion as man, yet refuse to see his standard of holiness as God, then we need a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus is holy. Jesus hates sin. Jesus became lower than the angels so that he can commune with us and die for us to take on the, the wrath of God because of our sin. Don't think that Jesus is just okay, winks and nods, at our sin. He hates sin. He's God. He loves cleanness. But this is the beauty of the gospel. When you understand that, you will understand the beauty of the gospel. For it is this man-God image that makes the story of his death so powerful. For he was victimized as an innocent man, but he was glorified victorious as God. For he was nailed to the cross as a man in agony, but now he reigns as the God of all creation. For he was buried as a man of sorrows, but he has risen as a sovereign king. For though Peter knew him as a man of miracles, Christ was about to reveal himself as God. And never before in all the biblical narratives since Adam and Eve had man seen the full incarnation and the righteousness of God. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, there's a guy in there named Moses. And Moses actually asked, (laughs) why are you laughing? Everyone knows who Moses is, I'm sorry. (laughs) Moses is on this mountain, kind of like these disciples are, and 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 he asked a very simple question. He says, can I see you for who you really are? It was a great question, but it was way before its time. Moses says, God, let let me see you for who you really are. And even Moses, one of the pioneers of our faith, God was like, no, 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 no. Can't do that. I'm going to put you in a rock, and I'm going to pass by you, and you can see my backside. But if you look at my face, I'm going to kill you. Like, how inviting is that, right? (laughs) That's what happened to Moses. And now Jesus is taking these three lowly-level men And he's about to reveal to them, to them, who he really is. The very thing that Moses asked for is about to be revealed to these guys. Listen, I don't mean to draw the comparison, but like, Moses is here, (laughs) and Peter and them, they were way down here at this point in time, right? 
We know about Moses. The Old Testament is, is, is predicated upon the teachings of Moses. And he asked to see the face of God and was told no. And these guys who can't even seem to get it right, who confused, who's confused by the message of Christ, who gets on Christ's nerves at times, these guys who by no means have it right at all are about to see the full incarnation of God. So Christ commands Peter, James, and John to follow him up on a mountain early in the morning. And when they get up to the mountain, this is kind of the part of the story where uh, it gets kind of trippy. <laughs> just, I don't know a church word to say that. It just gets kind of trippy. Uh, see, Peter, James, and John are sitting there, and suddenly Jesus' face begins to glow like a glow stick at a local arcade night, right? And uh, his garments and his clothing, they, become, they begin to illuminate and they begin to shine. And his eyes, his eyes become like a raging fire. And the ground begins to shake and the clouds begin to form around the mountain. And Moses, who is there representing the law, appears to be in submission to Christ. And Elijah, who represents the prophets of old, appears to be in submission to Christ. And the wind is gusting and the air has bowed towards its master. And all of heaven has stood still for that very moment. For Christ Jesus is in full deistic form and has stepped foot on the very mountain that he raised up. Christ as God, this is so amazing, Christ as God is inhaling the very oxygen that he breathed into us. And the elements have gone robust for the creator has just been revealed to sinful eyes. And Jesus has just been transfigured as God. And Peter and the others are frightened, rightfully so. I mean, like, if Jesus walked in here today and we just saw what they saw, like, like we have a puppy, right? <laughs> and she pees everywhere. Everywhere. And she poops everywhere. And I get so mad. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, like why do you do this? That would be me if Jesus came in here and just did that on that stage. This place would smell like... Price Hill. <laughs> it would smell so bad. <laughs> that would be me. And they are scared. Rightfully so. And in their fear, check this out, in their fear, in their fear, in their fear, a loud voice from heaven comes down and says, do not be afraid. Obey this man, for this is my son. Who is this God that brings back prophets from the grave? That opens up deity that once had been concealed. That fellowships with me one moment and the next moment commands the waves to obey him. Who is this God that takes low-level society men and changes them into world changers? Who is this God that is so powerful that his birth would be prophesied for over 1,400 years? Who is this man that we call Abba, Father, Creator? Jesus. And Peter has been so deeply affected by what had just been revealed to him that he sacrifices his aspirations and his dreams and his goals to preach this message, to preach the message of the gospel, to preach the message of his best friend by who the way turns out to be God, right? That's like if my wife turns out to be God, like, whoa. That's crazy because I see you every day. I'm intimate with you on a daily basis. This is Peter looking at Jesus. And he says, whoa, you're God? And he sacrifices everything, everything, even his own life, to preach the message of his friend. And Peter knew, Peter knew that this revelation was so deep-founded that he gave it all up. 
And there were, there were some people, as we go over to Second Peter, there's some people that actually begin to say, like, well, Peter, listen, the story sounds great. It sounds cool. I'm really motivated. I feel like I can do everything now. But the only thing about it is, like, you're lying. Like, that's essentially what they're telling Peter. It's like, you're lying about this. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. We're not lying about this. We, we were there. We, we saw Jesus as he was being transformed. We saw Jesus as he was being transfigured on that mountain. We, we have no reason to lie about this. Peter would give up his life for this truth, for this message, and for this gospel. This has got to be more than a scripture quoting contest, church. This has to be more than mediocre preaching and good singing. All of this will be for naught if we have not experienced Jesus. So I ask you again, what is your view of Jesus in here today? Do you see Jesus as just a nice man who's just very convenient when you need him to be? You see him as a nice man like, oh man, he teaches such good morals. One day I hope to have good morals like that. Is that what you see Jesus as? Do you see Jesus just as a moral teacher? As he was. That can correct a couple of behavior things, but you don't want to let him get to the deep stuff in your heart. Do you see Jesus as just as a historical figure, as some figure to be studied? Or do you see him as one to be revered? Do you see him as your friend to be revered? Your view of Jesus is the most important thing that you will get right on this side of eternity. Your view of Jesus not just today, as we're talking about it in church, but your view of Jesus tomorrow when the boss is pissing you off. Oh, I just summoned the spirit of Steve Carr when I said that. <laughs> that is what is important. It is your view of Jesus when the pressure starts to get on you in this week and you feel like you're overwhelmed with emotion. It is that view that is the most important thing. It is that view of Jesus when you're like, whoa. I'm way out of my element right now. I feel so unqualified to do this. I feel so stupid. I feel so dumb. I feel so ugly. I feel so X, Y, or Z. It is that view of Jesus that is going to carry you through. This entire, this entire book right here, this entire love letter that is falling apart, but my life isn't. Okay, Bible joke. <laughs> this entire love letter right here is predicated upon how will you and I see Jesus? Everyone's always talking about like, oh man, this generation is so not Christian so stupid. They don't come to church without understanding that like they are going to get part of their view of God based off of what we are doing here today. Do you want to see your community changed? Do you want to see your own life changed? Do you want to see things in your life get better or go a different direction? Do you want to see your friends come to know Christ? It starts with your view of God. And you don't have to be 50-year-old and and strung out on drugs and go through this terrible thing and come out of some gang and be beaten and come out of jail to figure out that Jesus is God and he's a savior. You can get that revelation right now. You can understand that right now, right here, today. And maybe some of you are like, well, I already know who Jesus is. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're saved. But there's so much more he wants to reveal to you about himself. And the challenge this week, along with next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, is will you be able to fix your perspective upon the image of Christ? Will you be so consumed with what's going on at work, or what's going on in your house, the stresses of the world? Will you be so consumed with that that you, that you fail to see Christ in the midst of it? Because he's always there. He's always there. And he always will be. So what is your view of Christ? 
It's not one that I can answer for you. It's not one that I even want to answer for you. My view of Christ is not going to get you into heaven. Your view of Christ is going to get you into heaven. Your view of Christ is what's going to touch your neighbor. Your view of Christ is what's going to touch your heart. Your view of Christ is what's going to keep your household together. Your view of Christ is what's going to help you to grow to be the man or the woman or the father or the wife or the husband that God has called you to be. Before he does anything through us and around us, what God wants to do first starts within us. And it starts right here with how we see him. You won't see racism for what it really is until you see Christ for who he really is. You won't see poverty for what it really is until you see Christ for who he really is. You won't see community for what it really is until you see Christ for who he really is. It's all tied together. So what is your view of Christ? That's what I hope that you go away with this morning. Asking yourself tomorrow, well, how am I seeing Christ? How am I seeing Christ? How do I want my children? How do I want my wife? How do I want my friends? How do I want my community? How do I want my heart and my flesh and my soul and my, my temptations? How do I want everything in my universe to see Christ? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word today. Uh, we know that your word just will not come back void. We know that your son is holy. We know that your son was given to us as a savior. And God, we pray that not just today on Sunday, but on Monday, that we can remember that Jesus is with us. God, I pray for the person in here today who may be going through the motions, who comes to church, but they're not really getting it. I pray for the person who feels as though that they are isolated, they're alone. I pray for the person that feels as though that they're never going to get it right. I pray that you would help them see Jesus even in the midst of their situation. I pray that you would help us to fight for the image of Christ on a daily basis. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Please forgive us for not seeing you for who you really are. We pray that you would be with us this week, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would step with us this week. And it's in your wonderful and majestic name that we pray. Amen.